<clears throat> Thank you, Vaughn, for those kind words, and I appreciate uh, more than you realize the opportunity to stand in front of you today and share a portion of God's Word that I that I hold very dear and near. <clears throat> I'm excited. And I'm humbled and I'm a, I'm a little bit terrified to be able to stand here today and share with you. I promise I will do my best not to uh, waste your time. And uh, i got to get my clock out here because i got some brothers that are still clock-eyed. And I want to make sure that we... You know, back in the day, we, we were able to preach for half an hour. But it looks like i got uh, 24 minutes or less now, so... I make no promises whatsoever on that, but I will try. I want you to know that that we're at war. We are at war with the evil one and his minions. And they're taking names. And they're taking prisoners. And they're showing no mercy whatsoever. And it happens around you and me every single day. That's why the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian disciples these words... Put on the whole armor of God so you'll be able to stand against the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against enemies that are like you and me, but against evil rulers and authorities and the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against the evil spirits in the holy places. Folks, we need to be prepared for war because we're in war. And even though Jesus Christ hindered the devil and overcame Satan's ultimate power over sin and death on the cross, the devil's still alive and he's still well and he's still active and he's still working. And nobody is exempt from attack. There's not a person in here who's exempt from being assaulted by Satan. And because these attacks come from an unseen world, a world we can't see, guess what? You don't see it coming. And more often than not, we're blindsided with no warning whatsoever. And the attacks come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's a full frontal attack, but not very often. Most of the time, the attacks of Satan are subtle and secretive. And he gets you where you least expect him to get you. And sometimes it comes from people we know. From people that we love. From people we respect and trust. Sometimes it comes from complete strangers. Sometimes the attacks come through disease and discouragement. And sometimes the attacks come from our own personal moral failures. And though the attacks of Satan are diverse, and though those attacks are, are many, they are all attacks that have this one thing in common. They are designed to discourage and demoralize and demean and destroy and devastate you. And if you've ever felt any of those things, I promise you, you have gotten attacked by the devil. The purpose of an attack from Satan is to derail disciples of Jesus Christ into thinking that they're helpless, that they're hopeless, that they're worthless, that they're unsalvageable. The purpose is to paralyze the church, to destroy our effectiveness for the cause of Jesus Christ, to distract us from the main event. You know what the main event is, right? You know why we're here, right? You know why we're a church in the first place? It's so we'll seek and save lost people. That's why Jesus came. That's why we exist. And when we get distracted from that, 
Satan is winning the battle. And the fact is that Satan has already been defeated. We know that. But he's still not going to go down without a fight. And he's going to take as many people with him as he possibly can. Now there are one or two things can happen when you find yourself confronted with a formidable foe. One is if you're an army and a formidable foe comes along, you can, you can scatter and run for cover. You can head for the hills. You can argue with each other over which way should we go. You can trample on one another in the effort to escape. You can become absolutely useless in the fight and end up in surrender. That's one action that can happen when you're meeting a formidable foe. The other as an army is you unite as one man, one woman, one people. And you keep your focus on the supreme leader. And you keep your focus on the mission at hand. And you watch one another's backs. And you go on the offensive and lead yourself to victory. Now which army would you want to be a part of? I don't want to be a part of the enemy that run, or the, uh, of the army that runs from the enemy. I want to be a part of the army that stands united and fights. And as we begin 2018, everybody here can look back over the past year and recognize attacks that we have endured. Some on a personal level, some on a congregational level. And many of us have been through a real tough year. We can do one of two things. We can scatter and surrender or we can unite and we can fight and seize a victory for Jesus Christ in spite of Satan's best effort. And that's the one I vote for. If you've ever heard me preach, you've probably heard me say something about the unity of believers. It is a doctrine that's oft neglected. And division wins the day more often than not in most churches, in most homes, in most of our relationships. And yet unity is at the very core of the heritage of churches of Christ. I didn't leave you any blanks to fill in in the bulletin this week. I wrote a little article. I hope you'll read it if you haven't already. Don't read it right now. Okay. But it has a little more information that I wouldn't have had time to share with you in the lesson today. But I want you to read that. The elders asked me to share something, some thoughts with you about Christian unity as we begin this new year. As we look to reestablish our vision as a church. What a beautiful thing that Jared mentioned last week. That coming up in the next few weeks and months. Wants the whole body of believers to collectively talk to one another. And talk to leadership about what vision you have for this congregation. For the next few months. For the next few decades, we have a rich heritage. We need a bright future, and God will give that to us if we unite together and do that. And also, as we begin the process of looking for just exactly the right, best possible preaching minister for this church family. You know, for the past 200 years, Church of Christ has done a pretty good job about researching and teaching every little jot and tittle in the Word of God, getting all the getting all the, the verbs right and, and, and the nouns in the right place and understanding the meaning of biblical words. We do a pretty good job at that. But more times than not, what we do poorly at is practicing the overriding of doctrine of unity in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that without unity in Jesus Christ, none of the rest of it even matters at all. It was Jesus Christ himself who said in Matthew 12, 25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And so today we want to talk about what I call the heart of unity. 
It is a message from the Apostle Peter, who got his message directly from Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn one verse of Scripture, and it's going to be our memory work. And I hope that you'll do like you expect your kids to do when they go to Bible class, and that they do their memory work. It's an easy verse to remember. When you leave today, I hope you can say it. Not only do I hope you can say it, I hope you will live it. I hope it will be your mantra as you move forward. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. It's not coming on the screen. You need a Bible, okay? So get your Bible open. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Or get your device. If you use your phone or your iPad for your Bible, that works for me. 1 Peter 3, 8. I'm going to read it to you out of the Revised Standard Version because that's the one I memorized a hundred years ago. It's real easy to remember. We're going to say it a bunch of times today. I hope you'll get it. Finally, Peter's writing a conclusion to the early Christians in his book. He says, finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Well, that sounds like just a simple text, but Peter... Peter sums up what I call the heart of unity here by revealing three kinds of heart that we must have if we're going to have unity. It's great to have the right doctrine. Get all the bullet points, okay? But if you don't have the heart, if you don't have the spirit that God wants you to have, it is not going to work. So we've got to get this. First kind of heart I want you to see that Peter tells us we must have is a loving heart. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren... A tender heart and a humble mind. He tells us we got to love each other. I don't know about you. There are just some folks that are difficult to love, right? Probably not in this room. Everybody here is always lovable, no doubt. But everybody in here knows somebody that you might categorize as sister better than you, or brother run the church, or 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 maybe or maybe sister I'm always negative, or maybe brother I know everything. You run into people like that. Everybody in here, I promise you, there's somebody, when you see them coming, you duck and run for cover. Because you don't want to get stuck in a lobby in that conversation. Because you never know, yeah, you do know where it's going to go. And you don't want to be a part of that, right? Okay. Peter says that that doesn't fly. He commands us. That if we're going to have the spirit and the heart of unity, we must love our brothers and sisters. And love listens and cohabitates no matter what the idiosyncrasy is, no matter whether they have halitosis or their hangnail hurts or they got whatever problem is going to come out of their mouth, they're still your brother, they're still your sister. you got to love them. And that requires Active participation, not ducking and running. But in addition to that, when we genuinely love others, it enables us to overlook matters of opinion. It enables us to overlook offenses. Sin. Somebody hurts your feelings. Well, they never apologize to me. Well, big whoopee deal. Just because they don't apologize to you doesn't mean that you don't owe them forgiveness. Well, what do you mean I owe them forgiveness? Well, did you ever ask Jesus to forgive you before he offered to forgive you? Don't think so. Jesus hung on the tree. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What are you saying? He could have said it this way. Lord, there's a bunch of ignorant people out there and I'm just going to have to overlook them. But that's not the way he said. He said it in a loving way. And he said that about you and he says that about me. And we need to say that about each other.
You and I are supposed to be in the sin-covering business. Did you know that? Some folks have the mindset that they're going to be the exposers. I'm going to expose everything. I'm going to just show everybody where they're wrong. That's not what God actually calls you to do. God calls you to be so loving that you look for ways to cover stuff up. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. If he, uh, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. And then in 1 Peter 4, just one chapter over, and verse 8, the text says, Love covers a multitude of sins. we got to be in the sin-covering business. Don't ignore it. Sin has to be dealt with. And if Roger sees me caught up in the sin, the most loving thing he can do is come alongside me and say, Brother, I see you caught up in this sin. What are we going to do about it? But then you forget it. You move on. You can't put people in moral quarantine just because they fouled up. Jesus came to associate with messed up people. If you're not messed up, you need to leave. Because the Lord's church is a church of messed up folks. <coughs> Calm down, Jeff. <clears throat> Love keeps no record of wrongs. You know what we do to our children, right? They bring home an A paper, A plus, and maybe for your child it's a B. Whatever it is that your child, that's their level of excellence. You put that on the fridge, right? People come in the house. Hey, let me show you what my child did. Got an A. How do you like the picture? Wonderful. Your child brings home an F paper. What do you do with the F paper? You don't put it on the fridge, not if you're a good parent. You don't want to remind them of their constant failure and their worthlessness. That's not how you motivate people. You motivate people by accentuating the good and covering up the bad. That's what you do when you love. That's what Peter calls us to do. Give you a little quick history lesson. Martin W. Stone and Alexander Campbell were two prominent leaders in the American Restoration Movement, of which we are heirs. That's where Churches of Christ came from. If you don't believe me, just read the article in the bulletin, okay? If it's printed, it's real, I promise. They were two great leaders in the early American Restoration Movement. They had this kind of love for one another. From two totally different camps. Campbell was a Presbyterian and Stone was a Pentecostal. All right? Stone records this statement about Campbell in his autobiography. He said, I will not say that there are no faults in Brother Campbell, but there are fewer perhaps in him than any man I know on earth. And over those few, my love would throw a veil and hide from view forever. Folks, that's the kind of heart that Peter's talking about. That's the kind of heart that breeds unity. That's the kind of heart that grows church can't be stopped. That's the kind of heart we must have for one another. And that's the kind of heart the world has to see if they're going to ever believe that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not going to ever convince those around us that we're disciples of Jesus Christ because we sing right, pray right, eat communion right. They don't care about that. What they care about is, do you really love each other? Jesus said that in John 13, 35. Verse 34, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. It really wasn't new, but it's new in this way. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the key. And that's the first ingredient. Second kind of heart, Peter says we have to have. It's kind of a two-word heart. Sympathetic and compassionate. Tender heart in the Revised Standard Version. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
The point is, we need to have and share the feelings and circumstances of others. Whether those are joyful or whether those are painful really doesn't matter. And that includes both sympathy and compassion. Those are two different words that have two different meanings, okay? And I want you to understand the difference. Sympathy means to feel with others. That's pretty easy to do. And we feel pretty good when we feel with others. Somebody's crying, we cry, we feel good. Somebody laughs, we laugh, we feel good. Uh, I have to confess, Susie and I don't really watch network TV for the most part, but we do binge watch stuff on Netflix, and we'll find some series that, uh, and those are hard to find, but we'll find one every once in a while that's pretty good. And we were watching one, I don't remember what it was the other night, but at the end of every episode, we look like a couple of blubbering idiots sitting there just crying. We were sympathetic. But sympathy in Christ is not sufficient. We also have to have a heart of compassion. Because it's the heart of compassion that takes us to the next level. Compassion gets involved. Compassion takes the burden. Compassion helps. Compassion is love with skin on it. Sympathy is just talk. That's all it is. Compassion is putting power in the punch of your words. It's seeing the need and doing something to fulfill it. They must be actuated, actuated with action. James chapter 2, for example, verse 15 to 17, James is talking about faith without works. And some people were saying, all you got to do is believe and everything's good. James is saying, that's not enough. You got to actually do something. Can't just sit on the pew and be happy about your faith. You got to get off the pew and get in there with everybody that's having a problem and help them out. And he brings up the situation and he says, if you see your brother or sister ill, ill clad, poorly clothed, and in lack of the daily necessities of life, and say to them, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled. But do nothing for their problem. What does it profit? Faith without works is dead. And if I see somebody having a problem, I say, man, I'm just going to pray for you. That's good. We, we need prayer. I believe in the power of prayer. But sometimes the answer to your prayer is you getting off your derriere and going out there and doing something about the problem. That's called compassion. Is that too blunt? I mean, that's straight up. You see a need, you fill it. Drives me crazy at work. Go in the restroom. I understand the women's worst restrooms are worse. I have no idea. Never been in one. Except that one time I went into Sam's. That, that was embarrassing. But they moved the sign. I don't know what's up with that. But uh, you go in and there's just trash on the floor. Garbage cans overflowing. Soap dispensers empty. The toilet paper thing is empty. I'm like, people, we're all adults. Why do I always have to be the one to fill the paper towel dispenser? It's not on my job description either. Why can't you just do what needs doing when you see it? On a broader spiritual level, isn't that not so true? You see something needs doing, you don't need an elder to tell you to go do it. You don't need a preacher to show you how to do it. You don't need a deacon to figure out what he's supposed to do. You don't need any of that. You just need to do it. You don't need permission. If it requires money, 
Then look in your wallet and skip Starbucks for crying out loud. How hard can that be? One of the biggest enemies of sympathy and compassion in our society is the pace that most of us live life. We, we get more information faster on more different fronts than ever before. Don't even watch the news anymore. Number one, there's nothing worth seeing. Number two, I get the headlines on my phone, and that gives me a belly full right there. I don't even want to know anymore. But we're always in a hurry. And as a result, sometimes we just don't take the time. Got somewhere to be, got somewhere to go. Maybe somebody else will do it. You know, if you want something done, you need to find the busiest person you know on the planet and ask them to do it, and they'll get it done. You want something procrastinated? You form a committee, and it will never get done. I promise you that, okay? That's true individually. That's true church. That's true at work. That's true everywhere. Nursing homes are sad places to visit. Assisted living centers, rehab facilities, hospitals. I remember as a kid a certain stench of a nursing home that I picked up on just made me just nauseous and repulse. Every once in a while I'll catch that smell somewhere. I mean, I ain't been a nursing home. I smell that. All these memories come flooding back of these poor old folks that were had nobody and they were confined. Somebody ought to do something about that. Right? Isn't that what we say? Isn't that what we say when we see in the community that something needs to be done and our church is not doing it? Well, they ought to go do something about that. Well, are you part of that group? If you're part of that church, when you say they ought to go do something, that means you, right? I don't know if I want this Jeff guy preaching again. He's just meddling now. About 35 years ago, I found uh, an article in the Greenwich District Hospital in London, England. I was still a student at Harding University. It was written by a woman, written, written by a woman in a geriatric ward. It was found in her locker after her death by staff people who didn't even know she was capable of writing. Some of you have heard me quote this before. I'm going to do it again. Just bear with it. I want you to listen to the words of a woman who had been forgotten. What do you see, nurses? What do you see? When you're looking at me, are you thinking a crabbed old woman not very wise, uncertain of habit with faraway eyes who dribbles her food and makes no reply? When you say in a loud voice, I do wish you'd try. I'll tell you who I am as I sit here so still, as I rise at your bidding and eat at your will. I'm a small child of ten with a father and mother, brothers and sisters who love one another. A bride soon at twenty, my heart gives a leap, remembering the vows I promised to keep. At fifty, once more, babies play around my knee, and again we know children, my loved one and me. Dark days are upon me. 
My husband is dead. I look to the future. I shudder with dread. My young are all busy rearing young of their own. And I think of the years and the love that I've known. I'm an old woman now. And nature is cruel. Tis her jest to make old age look like a fool. The body, it crumbles. Grace and vigor depart. There's now a stone where I once had a heart. But inside this old carcass, a young girl still dwells. And now and again, my battered heart swells. I remember the joys. I remember the pain. And I'm loving and living all over again. And I think of the years all too few gone too fast and accept the stark fact that nothing will last. So open your eyes, nurses. Open and see. Not a crabbed old woman. Look closer and see me. I read that many years ago and and I thought, you know what? Looking closer and really seeing people is the beginning place of compassion. And we need to follow through with that. And figure out, how can I soothe the hurt of someone else? Whatever that hurt is. How can I carry the load someone else is carrying? And if we'll focus as a church, if we'll focus individually on the hurts of others, we won't have time or the desire or the energy to bicker and fuss and divide and all of that stuff that makes us disagree and disagreeable and put stuff on Facebook that we wouldn't say to somebody face to face will go away and we won't be a divided church we won't be a divided home we won't be a divided country because we're too busy doing stuff that's really important and that is compassion for others and you know what if we seek ways to help others who don't yet know Jesus Christ guess who they're going to turn to when they recognize they need a little guidance with that as well You look at the life of Jesus Christ, he always had compassion first, and then he preached. He always helped the need first, and then he taught. He always had ministry first, and then the message. And that's a pattern worthy of you and me to follow. And the sympathy and compassion of Jesus Christ and God and Holy Spirit are what put Christ on the cross in the first place. And showing that compassion is simply showing the world what Christ has done for us. Well, I saved the the best for last. It's the quickest point, so it won't take as long as the others. Peter says, in addition to a loving heart, in addition to a compassionate heart, you need to have a humble heart. And you know, humility is kind of a weird thing. It's, It's an elusive quality. The more you pursue humility, the more it eludes you. The minute you think you have it, that's the moment that you're farthest from it. I knew about a preacher one time and used to introduce himself to people. They say, say, uh, how are you, brother? What do you do? I'm just a humble gospel preacher. What he was really doing was being prideful of the thing. I'm just a humble gospel preacher. Look at me. I'm so humble. (laughs) You know, sometimes we pray, Lord, we humbly come before you. And I know what our heart and our intent is, but really think about what you're saying. Are you telling God, God, I have achieved humility, and here I am, you're lucky I'm on your team. I mean, is that what we really want to tell God? The Greek word translated as 
as humble in the text that I just read you. It was used in the first century in, in papyri, early papyri that they used to write on a, a different literature. And it was used in reference to the Nile River at its lowest point. So at the time of drought, when the Nile River had almost no water in it, it was humble. That's what they called it. The root word of this same word found, is also found in Luke chapter 3 verse 5. Which quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, every mountain and hill shall be brought low. Meaning, we're clearing the way for the Lord. Leveled off at the base. And the challenge here in this word from Peter is that you and I must level ourselves. We must empty ourselves of our pride, of our agenda, of wanting our own way. And if they don't do it the way I want to down at that church, I'm still going to go. I'm not taking my contribution and going home. You see, anytime they do something at church we don't like, that's, what, that's the first thing it goes, right? Well, you're going to take my contribution and go home. We were supposed to quit that behavior after kindergarten. They were supposed to teach you that you share no matter what, and you're not the only person, and you don't revolve. The world doesn't revolve around you. You're not the center of the universe. Look, humility is not thinking meanly of yourself. Some people think that. I'm just terrible. I'm just a nasty old person. Well, you need some psychological help. We got to get you to a psychiatrist because you got a self-esteem issue. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking meanly of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. It's what Jesus did. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Submitted himself to the cross for you and me. That's humility. And that's what we have to have. Now how do we get there? There are two indisputable facts. That will promote Christian humility. And the first one is. A sense of creatureliness. You are a creature. Did you know that? I, I mean some of you are more creaturely than others. I get that. But, but you are a creature. That basically means you're created. That means you couldn't get here on your own. You also can't breathe on your own. You don't know how to make oxygen. You don't know how to make the mixture just so. Between oxygen and hydrogen and whatever else it is that we breathe. And it keeps you alive. You don't know how to make a cow. You, you might know how to grill a cow, but you don't know how to make that dude. You don't know how to invent stuff that is required for you to live. You are completely dependent on God and other people. You don't believe me? Just try to live for a week without going to Walmart. You'll have trouble with that. Susan and I like to go camping in an RV. And for crying out loud, no matter how much preparation we do, we still got to make a Walmart run once we get camp set up. Really roughing it, aren't we? Second fact is our standard of comparison. Our standard of comparison. We like to compare ourselves to sister better than you and brother run the church. Well, at least I'm not like that, you know, sister addicted to stuff. Our standard of comparison is Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect human being that ever graced this planet. And when you get to thinking pretty good of yourself about how you have not done this and you have not done that and I will never do that. You need to have a reality check pretty quick. 
Because your standard of comparison is Christ. Until you become exactly Jesus, you got no room to talk about anybody else. And that, folks, will compel us to be united. So, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to have unity. To possess that unity, we've got to have the heart of unity. Find that all of you have unity of spirit. Sympathy, love of the brethren, tender heart, and humble mind. Oh, Peter, that's easy to memorize, but hard to do. And yet we must do it. Jesus prayed for that. Did you know that? He prayed for that. In the garden, not, not the prayer, Father, not thy will, but thine be done, but in the upper room before the garden, he prayed. He prayed for unity. He said, Father, I pray not for them, but also for those who believe in me because of their message. I pray that they may all be one, Father. May they be in us just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. There is a purpose for unity. Because that's when people will believe. And he goes on to say, also that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. He prayed for that. You want to answer the prayer of Christ today? You can do that by making a commitment to be the source of unity in your sphere of influence. The apostolic church attained it in Acts chapter 2. Excuse me, Acts chapter 4 verse 32. The group of believers was one in mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they shared everything they had with everyone else. And folks, when we do that, then we can take the world for Jesus Christ. Then we can take it everywhere. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 23, Paul said, Because of the unity that they had practiced as a church, that the gospel had been preached to everybody in the world. And it's all because they were one heart and one mind. And we can do the same by following their example. I want to challenge you today to love like you've never loved before. I mean, make it your business to go to that person that you normally would duck and run from and engage with them. I want to challenge you to possess that sympathy and compassion so you'll be compelled to action. I want to urge you to work toward humility to enable you to accomplish the first two. And so now we each have a decision to make. We need to make a commitment. 2018 is ahead of us. It has not been written. There is nothing in stone. There is not success or failure, but you can make sure that success is the general outcome if you will commit to be a part of the solution for Jesus Christ. Pledge not to be part of the problem. Pledge that no matter what's going on as the church collective that you will get off of your derriere and do something for Jesus Christ in 2018. Maybe you're not comfortable with it. I don't care. Neither does God. He wants us to stand up together as one man and accomplish goodness in His kingdom and for Jesus Christ. You know what? A more united church starts with me. And it starts with you. We're going to sing a song. This is traditionally our invitation song. And um, I don't know how you feel about that. But here's the deal. If there is something that's beating on your brain right now that's convicting you that says, you know what, I have just not been on the team. I have not been a team player. Then I want you, while we sing this song, to you be praying to God. God, I repent of not being a team player. 
help me be a team player. And if you want to talk to your church family about it, you come on down and you ask for prayers. Help me be a team player to make sure I'm part of the solution, not part of the problem. Maybe there's another sin you'd like to get off your chest. That's why we're here. This church family wants to pray with you, wants to love on you, wants to encourage you. And if you've never named Jesus as Lord and Savior, I can't think of a better day to do it and become part of this church family. If we can help you with that, would you do that? Come see me while we stand up together and sing this beautiful old-time song.